Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With four campuses scattered throughout Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. All right. Good morning. Oh, I'm going to keep it going. This is good. I feel really special now. That was awesome. That was good. Hey, uh, welcome to you guys in the room. Um, and those of you guys who are online at our other campuses um, or just watching online later on, I'm really, really grateful to be with you guys here today. Um, so um, there is a, we're kind of in a rough time, right, in our culture. Um, there's a lot of divisiveness and a lot of arguing, um, especially. There's a big debate going on, right? Centers around two people. Um, especially if you've been on Facebook or online, you have seen on both sides of the aisle, it's name calling, it's frustration, it's like fact checking and all this kind of stuff. And it really centers around two people, LeBron and Michael Jordan, <laughs> right? It's been highlighted this year. If you guys don't have any idea what I'm talking about, just Google LeBron James, Google Michael Jordan, watch the videos, and you get to decide who is the greatest NBA player of all time. That's the debate, especially with LeBron winning his fourth now. I mean, they are both incredible athletes. Can we not agree that they were just, I mean, Michael Jordan was so like important to the game of basketball and LeBron James, he's just been so dominant and it's a great conversation. It's fun to debate. Who is the greatest basketball player of all time? I'm not going to give you my opinion, although winning four championships on three different teams is pretty impressive, Um, but I'm not going to tell you who I would vote for. Um, but here's the question I've got. Um, is, are they going to be as revered as they are now, 100 years from now? Or 200 years from now? 500 years from now? Are people going to remember Michael Jordan and LeBron James like they do now? My guess is probably not. As big an impact they've made on our culture here in America, even worldwide, they're going to be forgotten. Um, so I, I did this. I, I looked up, um, I, I Googled um, the most famous um, artist musicians in 1920. So just 100 years ago, who were the most well-known? Um, now, I was impressed. The earlier service, they actually knew who one of these was, which almost, almost ruined this illustration for me. So, um, but has anybody heard of Al Jolson? <laughs> okay. Okay, a couple of people have, not as many as the earlier service, thank you, maybe you just didn't want to raise your hand and make me feel bad, that's okay. Um, Al Jolson had two songs in 1920 that were in the top 10 of that year, two, he had the number one song, and I think it was like the number eight song. Al Jolson uh, was dubbed at the time the world's greatest entertainer at the peak of his career. In the 1920s, he was America's most famous and highest paid entertainer. And three people in this room knew his name a hundred years later. Um, Another person on that list, uh, number four, I think, the number four popular song in the 1920s, Paul Whiteman. Anybody heard of Paul Whiteman? Um, (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) 
Um, you've heard of Duke Ellington, right? Duke Ellington said, um, he declared, declared Paul Whiteman the, jazz, the king of jazz, and no one has yet come to near carrying that title with more certainty and dignity. We haven't heard of him. It's only 100 years later. Yet, worldwide, nationwide, millions of people, whether it's online or in person, 2020, um, are gathering under the name of Jesus, still know the name of Jesus. Jesus, who divides our calendar in the West, right? Um, we know Jesus. We know his name. You mention him to somebody, they're going to at least have some recollection or knowledge of who Jesus is. Why is that? I think it has a lot to do with what we talked about in the last series. Jesus was compelling. There was something that compelled him and, and, and moved, moved and motivated his followers to die for, for following after him and started a worldwide movement that started. I mean, Jesus didn't travel outside of like a 20-mile radius his entire life. And worldwide, 2,000 years later, people are still coming together to worship his name. He's compelling. But it's not the same. I mean, and the numbers are going down. If you read any statistics um, where you look at um, church engagement, faith engagement, it's going down. And, I th and, and, and it's particular for me and what I do and working with middle and high school students, the number of students that grow up in church and grow up in ministries just like ours who graduate and walk away from at least a church experience is staggering. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that we um, enjoy church community, we enjoy being a part of a church, um, but when it really comes to Jesus, we do, we have, there's a lack of knowledge, and not just knowledge about him, but a personal, intimate knowledge through relationship. And a, and a faith that isn't built on that is eventually going to crumble because a faith, uh, here's what, let me just read this. Uh, this is a book I've been living in the last couple months. It's called Jesus-Centered Youth Ministry. It's by a guy named Rick Lawrence who's kind of challenging student pastors to kind of do ministry with Jesus at the center. And he writes this, <clears throat> for almost all teenagers, and I think this applies to people outside of the teenage years as well, but he says, for almost all teenagers, Jesus isn't the hub of their life, he's either a spoke on their life's wheel, just a church thing, or not even a part of the wheel. They have no firm idea of who Jesus really is, why he came, what he actually said, what he actually did, or what he's doing now. And when something happens in their real world, they struggle to understand how Jesus is part of it. He did his own survey. He sent out a camera crew to just go interview students, um, teenagers, and they asked this simple question, how would you describe Jesus? And here are some of the responses he got. It was over, almost overwhelmingly, these were the responses. These are actual quotes. I'd describe Jesus as a nice, friendly guy. Next one, he is a nice, caring guy. He's um, nice. Um, he's very nice. He was a good person. He's a nice, friendly guy person. And then we read that last sentence again. And when something happens in their real world, they struggle to understand how Jesus is a part of it. Because a nice Jesus 
doesn't have the power or the ability or the authority to enter into the junk that happens, the dark alleyways of depression and anxiety and addiction and struggles. He can't. So it's easy to walk away from nice Jesus when we don't have the knowledge of the real Jesus. Who was Jesus really? The thing is, Jesus was nice. But that wasn't all. I mean, read the Gospels. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you understand who Jesus really was and begin to engage in him in a relationship, you understand that he's so much more than nice. So what I want to do today is this. We're going to take the rest of the service, and we are going to look at one story. It's one of my favorite stories of Jesus, and I want, us to, I want to ask ourselves, ask myself and all of us and everybody watching online, what was it about Jesus in his words and in his actions that made him so compelling? What made him so compelling that men and women have been willing to lose their lives following after him, and it sparked a worldwide movement that we're still a part of today? So let's just d- jump in. We're going to be in Mark um, chapter 5 today. Um, so as we get, you can open your Bibles, you can pull it up on your screens, however you want to do this, but I'll set it up. So Jesus had already kind of started his ministry. Um, he had started um, bringing disciples along. He had already kind of declared, you are my disciples, to the 12, and had sent them out, and they had come back. He has already performed miracles. He had started healing people already in this, at this point where we pick up here in Mark 5. Um, and, and most of the, what um, comes before this is Jesus had been doing a lot of ministry up and around the Sea of Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel, and he had kind of been going back and forth across um, this Sea of Galilee. Um, In fact, right before this, he had just um, performed a miracle on the East Coast that made a bunch of people really upset, and they were like, get out of here, and he was like, okay, I'll leave, and he got in a boat and went across to the other side, and so this is where we pick up this story. It says in verse 21 of Mark 5, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat, to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. So first and foremost, we have to understand this. Jesus has got a following. People are coming to him. He's saying things that are crazy. He's doing things that are crazy, and he's drawing crowds. So he steps off. He's already running from one group of people, gets in a boat, goes across a lake, and steps off, and there's another group of people ready there waiting for him. Um, Matthew's version of this story, when you look, in, look at the cross-reference when Matthew wrote about this, his phrase is, as Jesus was saying this, this happened. So Jesus was in the midst of doing things all the time. He was just going about his day when he was constantly being interrupted and, and, and being latched onto by people and by, being, and by crowds. So this crowd gathers around him. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came up And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. So what we need to, what what the word synagogue ruler does for us is actually helps paint the picture of who Jairus was. When you know him as a synagogue leader, here's what the synagogue leaders were responsible for. They were responsible for the physical aspects of the synagogue. So upkeep of the grounds, upkeep of the area, making sure everything was in order for the worship service, but also responsible for making sure they had people there to read scripture, they had appropriate people there to um, preach that day and give the lesson. Plus, part of his job was to make sure that nothing unholy or impure happened 
inside the temple. It was his job to make sure that everything was like in order in the temple and the synagogue because if it wasn't, they wouldn't be able to worship in there. What you also need to know about Jairus as a um, synagogue ruler was that he was wealthy. It was, it was a job that came with um, responsibility and came with wealth. Um, so we've learned that we learned that about him. Then we lead, uh, learn that um, he was, because of this job, he's important and well-known. And um, also with that, his problem was a public problem. The problem of his daughter being sick and close to death, it was a public problem. It was out there. Everybody knew what was going on with Jairus. So he's wealthy. He's important. He's well-known. And lastly, he's afraid There we go. He's afraid to lose status. To come to Jesus for him meant a loss of status. See, the Pharisees and the rulers of the Jewish faith had already decided starting to create plots to take Jesus out. He was a, Jesus was a disruptor. He was disrupting their faith system. He was disrupting you know, centuries of understanding how to relate to God. And they were already planning on taking him out. For a, so for a synagogue ruler who had status in that community to actually come to Jesus, the one who um, they're getting ready to take out, meant that he had to have been afraid to lose his status. I think it just shows us how absolutely desperate Jairus was for Jesus. So we go on and read this. Oh, and so Jesus went with them, right? So there we go. We land, Jesus decides, I'm going to go with you. All right, so a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So a woman comes up, you know, Jesus, Jairus comes up, hey, come heal my daughter. I'm desperate. I'm at your feet. Please come touch my daughter and heal her. All right, Jesus is coming. Yes, we're going to go do this. And out of nowhere, you know, this crowd presses around him, and then a woman is there and stops all the progress. What we need to know about this woman is this. Where Jairus was wealthy, she was poor. She had spent everything. She had been bleeding for 12 years. And without going into details, let me just say that the bleeding, most people believe, had to do with the fact that she was a woman. Um, if you want to know more than that, ask your mom. Um, so th that's kind of what kind of bleeding she had going on, right? So she's poor. She's trying to get help. She's gone to everywhere. She's spent. She's def desperate. She's destitute. Has spent 12 years dealing with this hoping for answers, not getting anything, dealing with the cleanliness problem, right? They didn't have modern technology for this, right? So linens and clothing constantly being changed and washed and just the, being an outcast, right? So where Jairus was uh, known and important, she is, oh, I want to make sure I'm getting the words right. She's anonymous, She had to be hidden because with that bleeding problem, she was an outcast from society. And society centered around the Jewish faith. And because she was bleeding, she was not allowed to participate in worship, not allowed to participate in the synagogue, which cut her off um, socially, cut her off from her faith. She was an outcast in her culture. 
And she was afraid as well. She's afraid to be known. She's afraid to be known, as we see here as we keep reading. It says, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. She had this level of faith that said, I'm desperate, I need Jesus, I don't want to be known, I'm already an outcast, maybe if I could just blend in with this crowd, nobody will notice me, I'll be healed from this, and I'll be able to just at least be done with losing all my money and all this, this, I can at least move on with my life. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. What's interesting is that... um, Jairus said, you got to come and do something, Jesus, which is one way Jesus often dealt with people is he, he touched them, he, he spoke to them, he had to go and, and heal them. She just touches the hem of his clothing and she's healed. Just amazing to think about the power that is just kind of emanating from Jesus at all time, that just touching him. She was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? This is kind of like a comedic scene. I mean, Jesus is like surrounded by people. The words that they use to describe this here mean like they were pressing on him. They were touching him. He's like surrounded by people. And the disciples are like, Jesus, everybody's touching you. How do you, what do you mean somebody touched you? And I love this image of Jesus realizing that power had gone. Can you imagine that? Like Jesus could tell power had left him. Now I've had this experience personally. I have it every month when my credit card statement is due um, here at the church. I just, I just feel the power go out from me. Like I lose all motivation and I'm like, oh, power is gone. It also happens at home every single week when I walk into my bedroom on Saturday night and, I, and my wife has washed the sheets and are not on the bed. And I just, all I want to do is go to bed and the sheets are in a pile and I'm like, oh, the power's just gone out from me. I don't want to put those sheets on the bed. And have you ever, oh, we have bunk beds. Have you ever tried putting the sheets on a top bunk? It is terrible. So I just see the sheets on the floor, and I'm like, oh, power has just left my body. I just want to go lay down and go to sleep. I don't want to deal with this. I get that. Um, so, so Jesus left, had the power leave. It's just a crazy, just weird thing to think about that Jesus knew that from her touching him. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And I think it's so interesting to me that Mark wrote um, that not only did this woman fall at Jesus, both the woman and Jairus, the same thing. They both were desperate and fell, they, they meet Jesus, they meet at the feet of Jesus. It's blow, mind-blowing to kind of think about the parallels here. So she came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. She knew she was caught. She's like, all right, let me tell you what happened, Jesus. And, and here's what Jesus did. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. See, she was already healed. She was already healed from her, from her sickness, from her bleeding. But Jesus wanted to call her out, and it's like, why, why would Jesus feel the need to, she'd already been healed, why would he do this? Why would he bring attention to her? She didn't want attention brought on her. What was Jesus doing in this? 
And when you look at the word that Jesus used there, daughter, when you go to the original language, it's actually a term of endearment. It can mean, a different version of the word means your actual daughter. The, word, the version that Jesus used was actually a term of endearment for anyone, any female, especially a younger female. And I think what Jesus was doing, he wanted to highlight for the people around him, I see her as an individual. I want to look into her eyes. I want to restore her to her community. I want to and you look at her and say, daughter, you've been healed. You've been restored. I think he was doing it on purpose, not to make her, to call her out, but to restore her, to bring life back to her. So while Jesus was still speaking, again, interrupted, right? Jesus in the middle of speaking to the woman. Um, Jesus was still speaking. Some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Can you imagine how Jairus would feel? He's gone to Jesus. He sacrificed his status. He said, I don't care about any of that. I just want my daughter to be healed. She's 12 years old. Jesus, come heal. Yes, Jesus is coming. We're moving. We're on the way to my house. And then this crowd comes around, and this woman stops him, and he deals with her. Wait, Jesus, you were going to heal my daughter first. Why are you dealing with her? And then all of a sudden, they're like, okay, good, done. We can keep moving, go to my house, and then my daughter's dead. Thanks, Jesus. Just imagine how he would feel. Knowing this, overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. What's interesting is the word believe that he uses there is the same word that is used when he talks about the woman's faith. The word woman's faith and this word believe that Jesus says to him are both the same thing. We'll get to that in just a minute. He did not allow anyone to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. So you need to understand culturally in the Jewish culture, it was a, you know, it was a, it was a big emotional, I mean, obviously when somebody dies, it's, it's a massive emotion, outpouring of emotion, but they actually would enhance that and kind of bring the emotions even higher by bringing in hired um, mourners who would come. They would come, you bring the, like, the town mourners in to help you mourn and to process and to kind of like grieve. And they, that's what they had done. They had brought this, these people in and there's a commotion in the house and Jesus walks in and he's like, what's going on? And she's just asleep and they're laughing at him because like, Jesus, <laughs> she's dead. And I think what's going on here really is that Jesus is really highlighting that there is physical death and there's spiritual death. And while our bodies can fall asleep and die, there's still a spirit that continues to live. And I think he was just doing a play on words here. And uh, so he goes on and says, after he put them out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and they went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Zeramaic, so I don't know how to say it, uh, Talitha Koum, which means, uh, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. What's really interesting about this is that Jesus touched her hand. It's also interesting to think that Jairus actually, at the beginning of the story, said, hey, come and touch my daughter. So for Jairus, he's like, my daughter is still alive. You can touch her. 
When Jesus gets there, she's dead. And in front of Jairus, who would understand the law, that would mean if you touch, as a Jewish person, you touch the dead, you are now unclean. You are defiled just like the dead is defiled. In front of Jairus, who would know all of this, Jesus actually continues to do what he had asked him to do in the first place, which was touch his daughter. Breaking rules, breaking customs, breaking norms, touched her by the hand, speaks to her, She's restored back to life. In fact, um, the ver- uh, Luke's recounting of the story says that her spirit came back into her, highlighting the fact that Jesus said she's asleep, meaning her body, her body is dead, but her spirit is still alive, and her spirit can't comes back into her. So we are both physical and spiritual beings. Physical death and spiritual death, two very different things. So I think the natural... Um, which I just did for us. I think the natural thing to do when we read stories like this is to focus on the people, the humans that are involved. And often we miss what makes Jesus so compelling. So that's just kind of, this is kind of my observations. Here's what I've observed in this about Jesus. First of all, Jesus is moved. And Jesus, first of all, just let's remember this. Jesus is the earthly representation of God. To know God, you have to know Jesus. And Jesus helps us understand God's character and who he is. So when I say Jesus is these things, it's exactly who God is as well. So Jesus is moved by faith and not religious rule following. What moves the heart of Jesus, what moves the heart of God, what moved Jesus to act was their faith. And the word that I said was, that's used to describe the word believe, that, that gives us the word believe that Jesus said to Jairus, and the word faith that he used to describe the bleeding woman is the same word of faith that not only implies a head faith or a spoken faith, but it's actually a faith that comes with action. Jesus and God, both at the same time, they're impressed, their heart is moved by our faith that where we respond by taking steps. When we respond with action, when our faith is backed up by what it is that we say and do, that's compelling. That's compelling to to understand that our God and and Jesus are, are moved by our faith. It's not rule following that moves the heart of God. It is steps of faith that moves God's heart. Secondly, Jesus was not a respecter of persons, which sounds really weird to say. What I mean by that is status is unimportant to Jesus. Look at the two different types of people that that came to Jesus, and he was moved by both of them. He allowed, he interacted with both Someone without status, someone with status, someone who is poor, someone who is wealthy. And God, just like Jesus, is moved by, he, he's going to interact with anyone. He, they are not respecters of persons. They, status does not matter to Jesus or to God. Thirdly, I think when you look at this story, we understand that to Jesus and to God, people over everything. People matter over everything. Crowds didn't matter. Crowds didn't matter. Individual people mattered to Jesus. Jesus spoke to crowds. He healed individuals. He addressed crowds. He had intimate conversation with people. I think, um, you know, it was people over crowds, people over rules. Um, Jesus had compassion on people. He was moved by their faith. Jesus saw them as individuals. And 
um, Jesus was present with them despite the crowds and the distractions. He gets off a boat, boom, crowd hits him. He spoke to an individual. He's on his way to go heal Jairus' daughter. Another individual comes to him, touches his robe. I'm going to stop and I'm going to deal with this person because she is not a distraction. Jairus is not a distraction. In fact, people are the mission. People are Jesus' mission. That's compelling. Lastly, he gives dignity to those who feel shame. Both of them were afraid. Both of them were ashamed. And he gave dignity to them. I mean, he, just think about Jesus holding her face and telling, calling her daughter restoring her back into a faith community, restoring her back into social status, giving her dignity where she hadn't had it for 12 years. That's God's heart as well. So here's what I want to do. Um, it's going to be a little different, but I want us to practice the practice of being compelled by reading Scripture together. So a totally different story. There actually are some parallels if you've been paying attention to the story we're going to have read over us and what we just did. But I'm going to ask Laura Lynn to come out. And I want us to practice the practice of being compelled. And I want you to ask yourself this question. As she reads this story over us, and you can read it along on the screens, what is it that makes Jesus so compelling? Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for the God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days, and then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And after he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come alongside with her also weeping, she was, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been in there four days. And then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Um, I hope that you were able to kind of just take a moment and um, just process what is so compelling about Jesus. I mean, Mike has done a great job of helping us understand who Jesus is um, over the last series, but my challenge to all of us is to take moments daily to stop and be moved by Jesus, to be compelled into following him. Um, so for those of you who are here or listening online or, or, or whatever, if you, and, you're, and you haven't quite yet taken that step toward Jesus, maybe you're kind of at a place of, of desperation like the woman. You relate to the woman or you relate, relate to Jairus and you're not ready. I, I would just encourage you to be compelled to take that first step. I mean, just read, understand who Jesus is and take that step toward him. 
And for those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, it's still so important for us to be, continue to be compelled by Jesus and to learn the way that he was with people. And as much as we can, walk in his ways live out the way that Jesus lived his life as his hands and feet to the community around us, but always striving to be compelled by Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for today and the opportunity to um, <clears throat> hear from you. God, I'm so grateful for the, for the scriptures that have been preserved for us as a way of knowing you. You want to reveal yourself to us and you've given us the Bible and you've given us the stories of Jesus to reveal yourself to us. And I'm just really grateful for that. I pray that we will all take time to be compelled and to practice the practice of being compelled by you. And I pray this in your name, amen. Guys, thank you so much for this morning. So glad you guys are here with us. So grateful to have all of you online as well and at our other campuses. Um, I'm going to go ahead and send those of you online um, over to the gallery, and they're going to continue to have the conversation there. So thank you guys so much for being with us.